Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, as you know, back in late February, I was lucky enough to get invited to visit the set of the Leica film Missing Link, which is coming out this week. We don't usually cover current film releases on the show, which any of our regular listeners would know. But I have been wanting to talk a bit about the history of stop-motion animation for a while. Um, as you may recall, I had a show last year that was ran for a season called Drawn, which is about animation. And we were thinking, if we do more seasons, we would get to stop-motion. And we didn't end up doing more seasons. So it's just been lurking there in my head. Uh, and Missing Link is kind of a perfect fit because it is a, a historical film, essentially. It's, it's a period piece. Still very fun. Um, In case you don't know Leica, they are the people that did Coraline and Box Trolls and Paranorman and uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, and now this is their fifth film. So I reached out to them since this had some some potential in the history realm, and I, I asked if they would be willing to be part of an episode about stop motion and talk about their film in a historical context. They were all super game, so I headed out to their studios just outside of Portland. I had the time of my life <laughs> uh, getting to ogle all of the incredible artistry that goes into making one of their films. It was absolute heaven. For me, that's like uh, some sort of paradise. It was just beautiful. Uh, And everyone there is super fun, so it was super beautiful. So uh, that's what led to this episode. And here's how it's going to play out. So first, you'll have a fairly normal episode of History Class. Uh, Tracy and I are going to give a brief history of stop motion. And then at the end, there are four short interviews with people from the team at Leica talking, as I said, about their film, both in the context of history Uh, in terms of stop motion's history and in context of the history that they are recreating on the screen, but in a stylized way. So uh, that means you are getting a supersized episode today. Yep. If you're one of those people that uses our show to run because you're like, they're always about 30 to 35 minutes, it will run long. And (laughs) just keep that in mind. You're running and going, where am I? I don't recognize these houses at all. Where do I live? (laughs) So, just in case you're like, stop motion, refresh my memory, that is made by taking still photographs of objects and then shifting the poses of those objects just ever so slightly for each frame. And then when you run those frames together and play them sequentially, it creates the illusion of movement. So you can string a whole, whole bunch of these together and you get a film. This is a painstaking process. And even today, with lots of technology available to make this more efficient, you still only get about three seconds of film for a day's work on it. Yeah, I think that's why, like, it's a very unique type of artist that is drawn to this as their their work. And it is often kind of difficult to pinpoint the exact moment when any new art form or concept is truly born, and that holds true for stop motion. But there is one particularly charming legend about it. The story goes that while looking at a piece of film that he had shot, Georges Méliès noted that there was a point where the film had gotten stuck moving through the camera, and as a result, there was an illusion that the people and the vehicles on screen had just teleported across the frame. You may remember Méliès from our two-parter on the Lumiere brothers, and from this point, he was just so fascinated with the idea of stopping the camera, manipulating the scene, and then picking up filming to achieve some similar effects on purpose. And we will be talking more about his most famous entry into this whole genre in a little bit. 
But Miliez was not the only person testing the limits of what a film camera could do. This was, after all, a fairly new technology, so plenty of ingenious and creative people were toying with it. Thomas Edison developed the kinetoscope in 1890, and the Lumieres created their cinematograph in 1895. So this was really the dawn of a new era in storytelling. And while the story of the French filmmaker stumbling onto the idea of stop motion is fun, uh, other people were kind of having their own eureka moments as they played with what a film camera could do. The Humpty Dumpty Circus is credited as being the first true stop-motion animation film. This was created by Albert E. Smith and J. Stuart Blackton. Regular listeners may recall Blackton's name for our Windsor McKay episodes. This is one of those episodes that just ties together so much in our archive into one episode. He was the photography supervisor on McKay's first cartoon, which took the character of Little Nemo from comics into film. And the Humpty Dumpty Circus used children's toys to tell a short, simple story about the circus. But the film itself is lost to time. There are still images from it. Maybe. The animated short was named for the playset that the animators used for the action. That was a product of the Schoenhut Company. So there has been some debate about whether particularly the image that's often used as an example of a frame from the film is actually just a promotional photo from the company that they were using to market their toys. In 1900, Blackton collaborated with Edison to make The Enchanted Drawing. It's the first time animation was captured on standard film. This was the predecessor to his 1906 film, Humorous Phases of Funny Faces. In the enchanted drawing, the shot includes the animator. He's featured in almost full figure as the main character. And then stop motion is used as he creates a drawing on a large sketch pad. This is essentially a capture of the vaudeville lightning sketch act that we talked about in our Windsor McKay episode but there are elements that are played up for humor using stop motion as well. And then in humorous phases of funny faces, the screen is filled entirely by the chalkboard, and only the artist's hands are seen as he draws the characters, which then come to life on their own and engage in all manner of antics. Humorous phases uses a lot more stop motion than the enchanted drawing. Blackton continued to explore the medium and in 1909 made a five-minute film called Princess Nicotine or the Smoke Fairy, which featured an early example of product placement. It was sweet corporal cigarettes that were used in the picture and the boxes on the screen with fairies kind of flitting about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll talk about it again uh, in a moment, but uh, early animation was not for children. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in 1902, director Edwin Porter, working for Thomas Edison, and Edison, I should point out, was kind of involved in a lot of these different projects, made a short t- film titled Fun in a Bakery Shop. And this is also a mix of live action and stop motion. And in it, a baker throws a large wad of dough at a rat as it climbs up a wall and it traps the rodent. But then the baker uses the dough to sculpt uh, what he has then created, this mass on the wall, into various faces, adding more and more as he goes until two other bakers arrive and they dump him into a barrel of flour. It's short. It only runs about 90 seconds, but it was touted by the Edison Company in their catalog as a, quote, side splitter. It's cute. I don't know that I split my sides laughing. That same year that Fun in a Bakery Shop was made, a much more well-known entry was made into stop motion, and that was La Voyage dans la Lune, which is a trip to the moon. 
This was Georges Méliès' film that most people think of when they think of early stop-motion animation, and really when they think of him. You can probably conjure up the image of the face of the moon with a rocket slammed into one of the eyes. Yeah, and Méliès played with this forever, both in uh, using things that were not humans and using humans in stop-motion pretty much from that point on. The Cameraman's Revenge was made in 1912 by Polish animator Ladislaw Sterowicz, and the opening intertitle of it reads, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Beetle have too calm a home life. Mr. Beetle is restless and makes frequent trips to the city. Again, clearly not for children. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mr. Beetle's favorite hangout in the city is a nightclub, and it's called the Gay Dragonfly. He has a favorite dancer there, and things unspool very dramatically. Mr. Beetle and the Dragonfly Dancer are romantically involved, but Miss Dragonfly also has an, another would-be suitor in the form of a grasshopper. The grasshopper is also a cameraman who films this pair when they're together to later show at the cinema. And then it turns out that Mrs. Beetle also has her own paramour, but Beetle's marriage seems pretty complicated. <laughs> It really does. Uh, The entire plot is played out using not puppets, but insects. And that is because uh, Sterovich was the director of a museum of natural history. And he had initially developed a technique to animate insects in order to recreate things like the drama of two stag beetles fighting. And then he realized he could film fictional narratives with his insect puppets. And the work that he did was really intricate and groundbreaking. He would recreate their legs with wire and then carefully connect them to the insect bodies in ways that looked true to life if you knew how insects' bodies worked, but it also allowed for manipulation from shot to shot so they could kind of be uh, transmogrified into more human activities. Sterovich went on to direct dozens of stop-motion shorts, including a 1930 film called The Tale of the Fox, which became the first feature-length film starring puppets. And Sterovich's 1933 film, titled The Mascot, Toys Come to Life, and a little girl's plush dog goes on adventure in a quest to get her an orange, and that's something that she dearly wants but that her mother can't afford. Sounds a little like Toy Story, and that's a valid comparison. It even includes harrowing traffic scenes where the toy is in peril. It's also a little creepy and disturbing and has some adult situations in it. Uh, Sterovich would be an interesting episode on his own and could be one day. Yeah, he's on my list for sure. Uh, Yeah, some of the toys behave in very grown-up ways. That's all we'll say. Uh, (laughs) The 19-teens featured early use of claymation as Helena Smith Dayton, a New York sculptor, began to explore the medium of stop-motion. And she actually ran an evening of shorts at the Strand Theater on March 25, 1917, titled Animated Sculpture. And while Dayton contributed to a completely new avenue of technique and animation using these clay figures that could be manipulated from shot to shot, her work is rarely discussed in depth because there don't appear to be any surviving copies of her films. In the mid-1920s came the first feature-length animated film, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, by previous podcast subject Lotta Reiniger. As we discussed in that two-parter, her work was cutout animation done in a silhouette style. And this cutout animation is still a form of stop motion, but of course it uses flat paper instead of uh, armatured puppetry. And we're about to touch on a very influential innovator in stop motion. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History Class going. (music) 
1925, one of the great names in stop-motion pioneering emerged with the film The Lost World, which was adapted from the novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and that was animated by Willis O'Brien. The film was directed by Harry O. Hoyt, but O'Brien created the mind-blowing for the time dinosaur sequences. O'Brien had been working in short films before The Lost World, including a series for Thomas Edison. But 1925 marked his entry into feature films, and that continued into the 1960s. His work includes the 1933 version of King Kong, the 1949 Mighty Joe Young, and even model work on the 1960 remake of The Lost World. O'Brien's influence reaches far beyond his own films, however. He mentored another of the biggest names in stop-motion history, and that is Ray Harryhausen. After seeing O'Brien's work in King Kong, Harryhausen was inspired and connected with the special effects man through a mutual friend. The teenage Harryhausen was encouraged by O'Brien to take art classes and really develop his skills in the fine arts in order to translate them into creating models for stop motion. Harryhausen got work on a project called Puppetoons in the 1940s and developed his skills. Eventually, he was hired by Willis O'Brien to work with him on feature films, including Mighty Joe Young. A few years after Mighty Joe Young, Harryhausen made a film called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. That was in 1953, and it was one of the first films that featured giant creatures attacking big cities, an effect that he pioneered by using rear projection to create this illusion of monsters in the shots. It was eventually named Dynamation. The opening advertising line for The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was, are we delving into mysteries we weren't meant to know? And it promised audiences, you'll see it tear a city apart. It was all thanks to the work of Ray Harryhausen. And Harryhausen went on to create some of the seminal works of stop-motion animation. The mythological creatures of 1958's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and the skeleton fight in 1963's Jason and the Argonauts are often cited by film fans and animators alike as favorites. I think that Jason and the Argonauts sequence is kind of another one of those that people think of when they say, stop motion. Like, you immediately see the skeletons coming out to have a fight. Yeah. I love it. We mentioned puppetoons a moment ago, and those were the creation of a man named George Powell. Powell's name doesn't come up as often as O'Brien's or Harryhausen's when it comes to stop motion, but he was responsible for developing some really interesting techniques. Powell was Hungarian, and he started making puppet-based animation in his studio in 1933. He had initially intended to work in 2D animation, but he had a hard time finding the right cameras for 2D filming, so he started to experiment with stop motion. One of the techniques that Powell developed was something called replacement animation. Rather than using just one puppet that required manipulation from one shot to the next, Powell would build a series of slightly different puppets so he could just switch out the star of the shot for each frame. And that sped things along a little bit. And this idea has continued to be refined over the years. Now specific pieces of puppets get switched out, and current animators will switch out just faceplates for even the most subtle of expression changes. That's something that you're going to hear talked about in the interviews that are coming up at the end. Puppetoons were born in the studio that Powell set up in Los Angeles after he fled the Nazi occupation of Poland in 1939. It was the first dedicated puppet studio in the U.S., and George Powell produced films for Paramount. One of the films he made after moving to the U.S. was called Tulips Shall Grow, and it tells the tale of a couple's lives turned upside down when their country is invaded by enemies called screwballs. They're a fairly obvious stand-in for goose-stepping Nazis. Their village is bombed and is burned to the ground. Their windmill home is destroyed by tanks, but it is ultimately a hopeful film. 
Yeah, and that is all told with puppets. In the 1940s, Czechoslovakian animator Yuri Trinka made the move from 2D animation into puppet-based stop-motion. And a lot of his work is rooted in folk tales, initially from the Czech tradition, but eventually he branched out into other cultures' shared stories and lore, as well as adapting Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream into stop-motion. Trinka was constantly at odds with the world in which he was creating. He was funded by a communist government, but that meant that some of the films were banned for religious content. It was an area that he wanted to explore as a source of cultural storytelling. And he also struggled with the balance of wanting to make art and needing to attract an audience. In 1965, he made his last film called The Hand, which features an artist trying to create his own sculpture, but a large hand keeps showing up and intervening to change the work into something else. It's a clear commentary on his own frustrations as an artist. Trinka what said, quote, a puppet is not a miniature human. He has his own world. Yeah, that that film, <laughs> unlike uh, the George Powell film that sounds very scary and ends pretty on a pretty up note, this film does not end on an up note. So just know if you go looking for it online, uh, it starts out a little bit funnier and then gets quite dark. Moving into the 1950s, we start to see some of the stop-motion characters that have endured to present day, including Gumby, created in 1955 by Art Clokey, and first appearing in an experimental film called Gumbasia. Clokey was signed by 20th Century Fox to create a TV series based on Gumbasia, and then Gumby made his transition from experimental film to pretty mainstream stardom. In the late 1950s, Clokey developed the Davy and Goliath series as a project for the Lutheran Church. In the 1960s and 70s, Rankin-Bass Productions, Inc. started producing their now-classic holiday specials, including Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and The Year Without a Santa Claus, all of which I remember watching every year in my childhood and sometimes as an adult. These are still run every year. The story of Hermie the Elf and Rudolph in the Land of the Misfit Toys continues to enchant people. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Even, uh, you know, we we are so used to high-level special effects and CG, yet kids today will still just sit down and be completely entranced by these. I also just like that the heat miser lives on. Uh, in the late 1970s, Phil Tippett and the team at Industrial Light and Magic were working on effects for The Empire Strikes Back when they tapped into an old-school technique that hadn't seen all that much use. It's what's come to be known as go-motion. So for the AT-ATs, or you may say AT-ATs, depending on your preference, and Tauntauns in that film, they didn't only use stop-motion, but instead they moved the armatures of those puppets slightly with the frame exposed. And this creates a sense of motion between the frames just as would happen when a human actor were moving during a normally running camera shot, thus minimizing the jerkiness that stop motion can sometimes have. Sometimes Tippett is credited with creating this technique, and he did really improve on how it was done. But the blur technique itself was actually used as far back as the 1920s in some of Ladislaw Starevich's films. Go motion was used on a number of other films in the 80s, but as special effects technology advanced, it really fell out of favor. Pee-wee's Playhouse kept stop-motion animation in front of U.S. viewing audiences in the form of its Penny cartoons, which featured simple stories narrated by a little girl. I love the Penny cartoons. 
Uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse ran from 1986 to 1991, and during that time, animators Craig Bartlett and Nick Park created the Penny Shorts. And eventually, Bartlett went on to create 2D animation series for Nickelodeon, but Nick Park went on to create the much-beloved Wallace and Gromit characters. Inventor Wallace and his very patient dog, Gromit, have starred in so many shorts and features, including A Grand Day Out, The Wrong Trousers, and Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Nick Park has also made films that don't star Wallace and Gromit, including Chicken Run and 2018's Early Man. And another more modern-day contributor to Stop Motion's ongoing story is Will Vinton Studios. If you recall the commercials which featured the California Raisins, which started running in the mid-1980s, you have seen work out of this studio. Vinton also produced the series The PJs, which innovated by using foam rubber puppets that could easily be replicated to create the stop-motion animation. This came to be known as Foamation, and it was that that enabled the studio to produce a 30-minute sitcom on a weekly television schedule. One of the major moments in stop-motion's more recent history is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, which came out in 1993. That film, directed by Henry Selick, tells the tale of Jack Skellington longing for a life outside the bounds of Halloween Town. It became a huge hit, and more than 25 years later, it continues to be a huge property for Disney. There's always a lot of merchandise available, and it really gave stop motion a big boost in popularity and ushered in a whole new phase for the medium. Since 1993, there have been dozens of stop-motion feature films produced all over the globe. And Will Vinton Studios, that we talked about a moment ago, evolved over time, and it actually became Laika in 2005. Since Laika's first feature film, Coraline, adapted from the Neil Gaiman book of the same name, debuted in 2009, the studio has produced Paranorman, The Box Trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings, and now their new film, Missing Link. Coming up, we're going to share Holly's talks with four people from the production team at Leica. But before that, we will pause for a quick sponsor break. And now we are going to hear, as promised, from some of the folks at Leica. And because their new film, like I said at the top of the show, is a period piece, it is set in the late Victorian era, one of my favorites, uh, some of my talks were centered around capturing that time period as part of the film, and other talks focused more on the history of the medium. First up is Deborah Cook, the costume designer for Missing Link. She's also designed costumes for Paranorman, The Box Trolls, and Kubo and the Two Strings, as well as having worked as a fabricator and a modeler on many other films. So she's got a lot of experience building and dressing puppets. One of the really fascinating things that she talked about was how she uses the historical trends in the period the film is set, for example, the availability of synthetic dyes, to convey the personalities of the puppet characters she's dressing. And she discusses one of my very favorite things a little bit, which is Victorian underpinnings. Your work, obviously, like any costume designer, starts with a copious amount of research. And I'm wondering how you get that process kickstarted, particularly when you're doing something historical and you have to get, like, your historical knowledge base ready to start designing. Sure. It's not greatly different from how you would research any film in the live-action world or, or any other type of movie, really. Um, to, to start off, I'll... Um, have several conversations with the director and we'll start feeling out the vibe of the of the movie and read the script to find the characters' costumes and their their personality as well. Uh, costume really does feed the personality of the character and informs their emotional arc across the movie as well and supports that. So we'll also find what motivates a costume change and what it should be from and into to help pinpoint what we're looking for 
how many costume changes there might be, what emotion they might be feeling in each costume and how the costume helps propel the story forward and, and support that emotional journey as well. So I'll start by deconstructing the script and identifying information for their costumes, such as any described item of clothing or accessory, their actions or activity, and their personality and character notes from Chris Butler, our director as well. And this gives me a baseline to grasp who they are, the director's expectations for them, and for me to explore costume ideas to flesh out their personality. And it also pinpoints the era, uh, historically, the region, and the, if there's any economic constraints on the style of their costumes, if they're meant to exemplify something in particular. For instance, in um, Lionel and Adelina, they're very vain, they're quite vain, and they love their clothes. And um, Adelina's influences are Spanish, and Lionel's are very much set in the city of London. But they're very fashion forward, so it's looking at techniques that might be around at that time that were new to um, textile exploration, such as the weaving for Lionel's suit, and for Adelina's clothing, that vibrant fuchsia colour, and Lionel's turquoise cravat would have been quite... Um, a la mode at that time. Synthetic dyes were first coming into play, so moving away from those Victorian smoky colours and into something more vivacious and playful was, was possible at that time, and they definitely indulged in that. And in contrast to that, Susan Link's suit is acquired in the Pacific Northwest, and there is a history of weaving in that, that area, and those kind of colours and that that weaving came into play there as well. So you start to build a contrast between the characters and their origins and how they play against each other and how that plays out across the movie. Now, when you are adapting period clothing, which often has very unique silhouettes, into teeny tiny diminutive sizes for puppets, what is the biggest challenge that comes up in that process? Well, I guess... We're not going to build them as they were built. So in, in a way, that's a win for us. So we're not going to um, build Adelina a corset, for example, under her Explorer outfit. She's wearing um, an S-Bend Swanbill corset. And we don't actually build any of that underneath. So we build the puppet shape in that form and build the costume over that. So in that way, it's a win. If it was uh, a live-action movie, they would actually be building all of that over a human so they'd have to build in all those um, restraining shapes underneath. So in a way, that's a game. But in, in other ways, building fabrics in the scale that we work, which is between one-fifth and one-sixth human scale, we need to find the right size threads, the right fabric selection with the particular properties we're, we're looking for. Um, our puppet shapes also differ from humans quite greatly. So even though they, they appear as humans, where their arms are set in their bodies and where their legs are set in their bodies and where their waists are and their shoulders are, are not where they are. For humans, they're built for animation. So there's particular arm lengths where the elbow position is that we need for um, our puppets to be able to touch their faces, for example, or walk or bend over. It's very, very different from human proportions. So you're working with those restrictions as well as finding, say, a small-scale fabric, which we now are, are way more explorative at the studio and we become quite self-sufficient in the, the fabrics that we make are very, very specific for us and specific for the animation 
requirements. So we need to build in understructures, for example. So we're not just looking at building our own fabrics. We're also looking at small gauge wires, weighted linings, and how they all interact together as well. So it's greatly removed from the idea of a, of a live action costume or how a traditional historical costume would be made. We can make our own departures that suit our own medium. I also wanted to ask you about kind of walking the line with a historical film between the historically based research and the obviously very, like, stylized look of any of the films that have come out of Leica. And, like, where are you comfortable kind of with the give and take of that and maybe veering a little off historical accuracy to stay in the style of the character? And when do you say, no, no, we really need to to make sure that this particular element of period fashion is included here? It does, it varies. Um Sometimes, I mean, I mean, this in, in the particular instance of, of Missing Link, we very much wanted a Victorian feel to um, aspects of Adelina's clothing and aspects of to Lionel's clothing, and just making sure we capture those elements that read as that. But then having the liberty to make a big departure for ourselves to add in the, the color palette of the movie, for example, is. Is, is very, very bright. It's very vigorous. It's very up-tempo. And that is not very Victorian. So combining those elements, for example, and some of the surface techniques, they need to capture the essence of Victorian era and Victorian fabrics and clothing. And they're very luxurious and they're quite rich. Um, they're very textural. But then... Uh, we need to make a departure into a field or area that suits animation. So there's, there's quite a few aspects to consider in forming the costumes and re- regional representation as well. So we worked with a cultural specialist when I was constructing the Himalayan costume to make sure that we had authentic reference for the type of jewellery and the type of cloth it would have been worn in that region, in that era, what the colours might be, what the origin of the threads might be, and then adding in a flair of personality to suit the characters as well. So there's, there's quite a few few elements coming together there. The next interview is with Ariane Sutner, the producer on Missing Link. And Ariane has a seriously impressive history in film and in stop-motion animation in particular, going back to working on The Nightmare Before Christmas. If you check out her Internet Movie Database page, your jaw may drop. She has really touched a lot of the films that are are, uh, cultural touchstones for us today. So I wanted to talk to her first and foremost about how the industry has evolved over the course of her career. To start with, you have a pretty impressive stop-motion career, both as an artist and a producer. So I feel like you also have a unique perspective on this industry that very few people would really have access to. In your opinion, what has changed the most about stop-motion animation during your career? I think what's changed the most since I started, um, which was probably around 1990 or 91, is, you know, the technology. There is such a long list of things that weren't around back then, just in terms of computers, software, cell phones, um, you know, and that's industry-wide, but it's also the whole world. So I think specifically related to stop motion, if I keep going back to, you know, the first movie that I worked on, which was Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, we, that's kind of as a good touchstone for like how we were 
making those stop motion movies versus what we're doing today. You know, at the core, we shot on 35 millimeter film with these really old Mitchell cameras. They were actually used in uh, World War II. The, the camera housing and the internal like gearing were really solid and reliable, so they were perfect for filming frame by frame. Um, and they're huge. They're they're ginormous. They're really heavy. They're cumbersome. So clearly, I don't know how they did it in World War II, but also wasn't really easy moving them around on the set. You know, to um, we'd also do and we do lab runs at the end of every day to get the film process, so we could watch dailies just the next morning. So you have a cutoff when you can deliver your film to the lab and how you have to and when you can pick it up what else there was no digital effects on on that movie it was all like shot in camera with some crafty optical effects we edited entirely on a steam deck you know with film so we didn't use the avid at all yeah it's we had you know we had bins of film and we were splicing together the film in terms of storyboards you know we were drawing artists were drawing pencil on paper and then we were shooting them on a down shooter manually so like now we shoot everything you you were at the set so you probably saw those um digital slr the single lens reflexes yeah. the, the cameras that you know they're consumer cameras you can purchase them like anywhere <laughs> that means that we have dailies all day long that's a huge difference in, in terms of how we make stuff we have programmable lighting and and programmable camera moves certainly digital compositing and 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 we were you know we use a lot of cg i mean we use cg for everything really we think for puppets and sets yeah we, we've taken advantage of those three oh my god it's like three decades of of technological <laughs> advances so the most noticeable difference i think on screen is probably is probably the facial animation which is might have been something we talked about when you were here yeah so like a nightmare we had replacement facial animation and it was it was totally analog we had you know basically done by really really skilled um sculptors sculpting and molding casting painting i mean we still have those processes for some things but this was done for every single face so um, if you've got, you know, 24 facial iterations for every second of film, which we still have, that's like a lot of faces to be made by hand. And you can imagine that, you know, time and budget would play a factor in the range of, I guess, the emotional life of, of these characters, you know, the puppets, because you can only do so much and you, you know, you can't really be consistent. So you want to only do as many as you can be consistent by making it by hand. So, I think that was a huge challenge and it's still a huge challenge getting the shapes and the paint colors to like match perfectly one frame uh, to the next. Everything then had to be and uh, very, very simple so that it was repeatable by hand. So we, uh, at Leica anyway, we introduced the 3D printer really that process on Coraline. That was the first, I don't know, I think we were the first people to do it. It was like a pretty big game changer for the stop motion world. You know, we could add a lot more color because we weren't doing all the color by hand, although it's still a little bit simple. We were able to, you know, print more faces, have them be more repeatable. So we could really introduce more of a range of human emotions and kind of broaden the story telling that we wanted to do in terms of, you know, the characters inner lives, I guess, shown on their faces. So, I mean, we, we just basically, with all this technology, like we, we're, we're getting rid of the impediments to storytelling that we used to have in stop motion film. 
right? So we are able to not just shoot what's within three walls or basically what's in a, in a box, you know, on set. But I would say what's interesting for me is that like all this technology has made, it got rid of all the, the, the challenges so we can expand our world, tell these really ambitious stories and really tell any kind of stories we want to without limits. But it doesn't make anything simpler or easier. You know, my dream, I thought when I, like even when I was working on TV shows, I thought, oh, if we can just get rid of these cumbersome cameras, we can have turnover on the sets. It'll be so much faster <laughs> and we'll be able to make quota. But of course, that just, you start filling in all that time with, you know, more ambitious projects and things that you don't know how to do. So kind of, you know, it, it doesn't make it easier. It just makes it, uh, the films that you get to see more rewarding to watch, I hope. Or, or not, I don't want to speak badly about those other ones, but it just offers more, you know, it's a bigger world. We we don't have as many limitations now. Yeah, I mean, well, I feel like everything gets richer as the, the medium develops over time. And I have seen you speak kind of to that before, and that kind of leads into this next question, which you may have already given me the answer, but uh, like I've seen you speak before about how every project is a learning oh. process. And I, I remember particularly mm-hmm. seeing you on Press Junket for Kubo and saying, we were not ready to make this film, but we had to catch up to what we needed to do. So what are maybe some of your favorite moments in the industry during your career that you feel like uh, will be historically significant that were like those moments that really kind of bumped the industry forward a little bit? I feel like every movie has some, but do you have like the one favorite one where you're like, we did this? You know, whatever kind of animation you're working on, it's all kind of incremental. So you're counting your success in seconds and frames. And so sometimes it's a good question because sometimes it's hard to step back and really try to parse the big triumphs or the big successes from just the the little ones that happen, you know, on the day-to-day and then they start to kind of take on equal significance. But... I don't know. I don't want to toot our own horn, but I it is tooting our own horn. I think that it's not the movie, but like a biggest historical leap for stop motion for us, I think is really, um, from what I have seen, is being able to be at the studio that's been here, like really tenaciously and thoroughly devoted to the stewardship of, of this kind of filmmaking stop motion, which is Leica, you know? All the, the stuff I'd worked on before, it, they were tended to be like isolated events. You know, you'd set up shop for like two years. Um, you hire a crew, you start shooting, and you just, you're pretty much learning what you're doing while you're doing it. So by the time you're finished the movie, sometimes it's, you know, new people. Every, often there are new groups of people. You're like, okay, I, I have a pretty good understanding of what we just did. And then you're scrambling to find another job or is there going to be another job? And everybody dissolves. They go their separate ways. And then like a couple years later, maybe three years later, you're like, okay, let's do this again from scratch. <laughs> so there's no real built-in time or money for research and development. Like if I'm, I'm producing something that's scrappy or a part of it, there's no line item that says, we will research and develop right, right now. There's, there's literally no time for it. So, and I mean, I think that's the case for so many movies and certainly I'm sure a lot of industries, but because we have this like dedicated space now and we have, you know, way more than just a handful of our artists and technicians are like, you know, all of our, our, our long time key people, they're able to really experiment with untested ideas and they're able to also work together 
because we have a history together. We kind of refer back to what we our successes and what we didn't do so well. We have a shorthand for communicating and solving those problems. So I think it's not necessarily like the, you know, it was a game changer, for example, on Coraline to get that printer. It's unbelievable. But I think it's really the studio being here that is the game changer for me that I'm able, we get to continue to work with these people who are still creatively really curious about this art form, the kinds of movies we're making. And we keep building on it. I, I, I said that to you about, I guess I said that about Kubo, but, um, you know, we weren't ready to do miss, Missing Link the way we did it we, without having done the four previous movies. There, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Next up is Brad Schiff, who, like Ariane, has worked on a lot of films. He's the animation supervisor on Missing Link. And during his chat with Holly, they talk about animators of the past that inspire him, as well as passing the torch and the historical knowledge on to the next generation of artists. So first of all, you, like many of the people at Leica, have worked on some very big stop-motion projects that I think most people would recognize. But I wonder how much you are aware of and think about uh, the people that have come before you, like Harryhausen and O'Brien, and how much that inspires your work. You know, it's an interesting question because I think about that a lot, but maybe not in the way that you would think we would or think I would. I talk about it a lot in the sense that I was inspired by Harryhausen and, you know, Willis O'Brien and George Powell and Rankin and Bass, all of that stuff. And when I go back and I look at that stuff, while it was groundbreaking for the time, it's pretty ropey looking <laughs> stop motion, you know? And, yeah. and, and I see what we're, what we're doing today, particularly here at Leica, and it's so smooth and naturalistic. And that gets me thinking about what the next generation of animators who are inspired by the work that we're doing right now, how good their stuff is going to be. And I'm just... It's interesting because I'm just starting to see it. And um, I have one of my animators, this is such a weird thing. Um, you know, we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of Coraline. Yeah. And somebody asked me, you know, was well, that strange, you know, that it's been 10 years? And I think, you know, well, not really. I do it all the time. And it doesn't, so I don't really think about it as being strange. It feels like it was just yesterday. But then I was reminded when one of my assistants just uh, just came on board and she went out to dinner with one of my animators who was celebrating his 24th birthday, <laughs> which meant he was 13 when Coraline came out yeah. and 15 when Paranorman came out and 17 when Box Trolls came out. And here's a kid who grew up, it's so weird, this is the kind of stuff that makes me start to feel old, grew up <laughs> watching the work that my peers and I did. And now here he is. Now we're peers. And this guy just has, you know, he's just one of these people that just has this unbridled natural talent. And we just have to figure out how to teach him how to work <laughs> in a production environment. <laughs> but, you know, just the thought of, of where they're going to go is so exciting to me. Yeah, I um, I have talked to a lot of animators at various points in time, and what I always love is how many of them talk about a similar thing, where it's like these kids grew up thinking this technology is just de rigueur, and so for them, like the next thing is going to be amazing. Yeah, you know, we we you know, like I didn't even know when I started. I didn't even know we didn't have frame grabbers. You know, I didn't know any of that stuff. If I had a character that fell down in the middle of the night when I was shooting one of my short films, I just sort of picked it up and. 
eyeballed where I thought maybe he was. Right. <laughs> you know? And and now these kids, you know, now these kids grow up with this technology that, you know, they can see where they've been and they can see their live frame and it's it's incredible. It's really exciting. Um, obviously the design departments on a film like Missing Link will take into account like the historical setting of what's going on in it as they develop their designs. But I wonder if historical norms are something that you consider when you are doing the animation, like how a character will move or how they'll behave. Are those things that you think about in a history context? They are, you know, but it's it's interesting. All the departments do such extensive research that costume-wise, we really benefit from the research that the costume department does because they will go back and look at historic, you know, pull historical reference and costumes from films that depict historical references. So we get the benefit of piggybacking on their reference. So, you know, the way Adelina's dress moved, we had a, a load of material that we were able to look at. So in that context, yes, Kubo was very was very much that way. Like I looked at a lot of Kurosawa films because mm-hmm. we had to figure out how we were going to control kimonos. And, you know, there's a reason that there hasn't been a whole lot of, you know, loose, <laughs> loose fabric right. characters in, in stop motion because it's a nightmare. But, um, you know, I looked at a lot of Kurosawa stuff, Redbeard, Seventh Samurai, Yojimbo. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes we look at a lot of historical reference. Other times, we piggyback on what, what costume will do. We shoot all sorts of reference. So the costume department also will buy fabrics and dresses and costumes for us that we'll shoot reference on stage. And we'll put it, you know, and we'll dress up an animator and walk around so we can see the, you know, how the weight of a fabric moves and that kind of reference we do. And if appropriate, we'll do historical reference. But a lot of that, you know, I'm, I'm able to piggyback from other departments reference, which is quite nice. We're just, just a big, big family in that sense. I love it. Um, because you do have a little bit of a, um, a unique view having worked on so many of these important films, I'm wondering what you think are some of the most significant moments in stop motion. And you can make that the history of stop motion or just within your career or both if you want to do each. All right. Um, wow. Let's see. You know, I think Willis O'Brien for King Kong yeah. is huge, huge. You know, George Powell, people, um, you know, kind of skims by. Sometimes it feels like people forget about George Powell and, and the puppetoons. And he was really the, the originator of replacement animation. And I think given what we're doing now um, with the faces, it's pretty significant, at least to me. Ray Harryhausen, of course. Rankin and Bass, you know, we all, my generation all grew up with the Christmas specials on TV, which was really sort of my first introduction to, to stop motion without really knowing what it was. Right. You know, and, and going back to Harryhausen, you know, with Mighty Joe Young and Seventh Voyages of Sinbad, you know, I always thought those films were cool, but I don't think it really stood out to me until Clash of the Titans with, I remember my aunt taking me and looking back, that was Again, I didn't know what stop motion was, but there was something that I loved about that film. And looking back, it was the stop motion effect. Yeah. Phil Tippett, of course. Yeah. For all the stuff and the Tauntauns and Empire. And oh, the, I'll talk about you know, Go Motion forever. <laughs> so great. Yeah. So great. And when I discovered stop motion in school, it was really Will Vinton, you know, with the with right. the uh, California Raisins and 
you know, that was the place I always wanted to work was Wolverton Studios. So that was pointed for me, for me. And of course, you know, Henry and Henry Selleck and Tim Burton for Nightmare Before Christmas, I really kind of look at as, as sort of putting stop motion back on the map. Because that sort of was the beginning of this next wave of stop motion. Yeah. It was Nightmare, and then it was James, and then there, it, there was a lull. And then it really picked up with the work that Ardman was doing, and then Corpse Bride, which began my ride. Oh, so good. Which has been, you know, I feel so fortunate and <laughs> lucky to have been on this ride. You know, I mean, it includes, let's see, Corpse Corpse, Coraline, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Paranorman, Box Trolls, Kubo, Isle of Dogs, Missing Link. Yeah, you could just lie down at this point. People would be like, wow, that's an impressive career. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> no, I mean, the exciting thing is, you know, we're step, we've just finished Missing Link. It hasn't even come out yet. We're starting to do development on film six, which I'm so jazzed about. I can't say anything about it, but it's, it's so exciting to get to work on projects here at Leica where we're continuously trying to push what's possible in the medium. Yeah. And it keeps it, it keeps it fresh. It keeps it fun. It keeps it inspiring. And, um, yeah, just feel incredibly, incredibly lucky. Yeah, you're doing all this stuff that historians in another 50 or 100 years will be like, I can't believe they pulled this off. Um, it's just pretty cool to think about. Uh, oh. <laughs> That is. Are you like, that's a little too much. I can't think that way. <laughs> that, <laughs> I, I do think, I do think sometimes, you know, I do, I, I do think about um, just Leica and the stuff that we're doing and how our films don't necessarily fit in the, in the same box that all other animated films do. And I hope that history smiles, you know, brightly on what we're doing here. I can't imagine it won't. I do have another question. This sort of builds on something you talked about when we first started speaking about having people working under you that are, you know, were inspired by the films you were making earlier in your career. Mm. And a lot of creative industries, and particularly animation, both like 2D and 3D, as well as what you guys are doing, I think there is this sort of baked in, like almost old school guild style mentorship where mm. one generation shares their knowledge and what they've developed with the next generation. But I find also there's often just historical knowledge that's passed along. Do you find that's that's true? And is that something you think about and that you want to make sure future animators in your field know what's come before them? Or do you just want to enable them to do amazing work and, and they'll figure out the history on their own? Um, I I, th I don't think that they need to figure it out all, all on their own. I think we try to share those things. It's interesting. A lot of the people that come here, are very, you know, well, everybody who comes here is so in tune with the history of stop motion that the, the coolest thing to share is, I mean, we're in the midst of an evolution of an art form right now. And, and myself and, and a bunch of my peers here have also been in this, you know, in this journey together. So one of the things I've been talking to my animators about, I think I touched on earlier a lot of our journey was sort of is based on working our way, climbing our way to the top of this stop motion mountain, if you will, with um, if you look at Leica as at the top of what we're doing right now. I used to think that the, you know, working on television shows was the path, you know, you, you're animating every day as fast as you can. And you're, you know, you're building a library of techniques, a library of instincts on what, what to do. But now you have these, you know, kids coming straight out of school that have this incredible talent and they're stepping off the ski lift at the top of the mountain, but they don't have any of those other experiences. So 
you know, everybody works in a way that they, you don't think about it. Like it's, it's just sort of an innate way of, of working. You know, you don't think of how you're moving the puppet or how you're setting up your unit as being special. But what I'm realizing is that's the important information we need to start sharing to these younger kids. I've, I've really sort of put out a challenge to my animators to start breaking down your techniques, start breaking down how you approach a shot, start breaking down, you know, how you move a puppet. And let's start sharing that with the kids that don't know that, that haven't had to work their way up from television, who are starting their journey right here at the top and are going to just keep pushing it towards the sky. It's fascinating. It's really interesting to to have that perspective shift about what I thought you had to do versus where we are now and now what we have to do to help that group whose journey is starting at the top. I find it really exciting and really cool. And it's interesting because I'm still trying to get my head around the best way to do that. Last but not least, I was lucky enough to chat with Chris Butler, who wrote and directed Missing Link, as well as one of my all-time favorite films, Paranorman. Uh, I kind of had a dorky Paranorman fangirl moment before any of the stuff that you're about to hear. Uh, He also wrote the screenplay for Kubo and the Two Strings. It also turns out he loves history. So this talk covered important moments in stop-motion history, as well as contextualizing a story in a historical setting and grappling with when words came into being versus when the story is set. So right out of the gate, uh, I didn't actually really think about this when I mentioned to my husband that I was going to be talking to you. He was like, ask him why he does so many history movies. And I was like, what? And then I realized that the movies that you have written in your time at Leica all do have a pretty significant history element. Are you secretly a history nerd? It is no secret. <laughs> I am a history nerd. I love um, it. I am unapologetic about it. I wish more people were obsessed with history because then we might actually learn something. Yay! I mean, I feel the same, obviously, but uh, it's always a delight when you meet someone in the wild who you might not anticipate is a history nerd. So are you consciously including historical elements in your films, or does it is it just so natural for you to be thinking that way that that just comes out? It's definitely part of me. It's 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 in my DNA, so I don't think I'd be able to avoid it. But I also think when you're when you're writing a movie, particularly for animation, you know, you're you're creating a world that you want to be compelling, that you want to draw in an audience so that they believe in it. They they have to believe what they're seeing on the screen in order to be invested in it. You you know, you're already a step removed with animation because you're showing the audience something that is different from reality. And I think what helps an audience is something to hook onto. And quite often that is historical detail. Certainly with this movie, uh, Missing Link, it takes place in, in the Victorian age and sometimes you have to get across a lot of information in, in a relatively short time. For example, um, because of constraints of, of time and cost, um, I, I had to establish the city of London very, very quickly. And I also, also had to establish what time period it was. So immediately, if you think of uh, Victorian London, you think of handsome cabs, horse-drawn carts, uh, top hats. There's, there's a whole bunch of uh, historical signifiers um, that everyone knows of, that everyone's aware of. And throwing them all into one shot, you immediately get 
the audience on your side. You, they immediately know where they are. It might be super stylized, but they get it. You don't have to say London 1888. You just have to have a shot of horse-drawn carts. Right. But that, that's it to me. That's what, that's what the history thing is. You use it to give the audience that recognition uh, so that they know where they are and they feel comfortable with what they're watching. And I think that goes the same. Even if it's like a, a fantasy movie, there are certain things that you, you, you lean on um, to create that tapestry, you know? Certainly it's something that, you know, Deborah Cook, is, as an example in the, the costume stuff, she does exhaustive uh, historical research. And, and the reference that she brings into it immediately gives you, well, first of all, it's, it's classy. Um, <laughs> it gives it a sophistication and it gives it that, you know, if you make something up, I think it shows. Um, if you use real life as an inspiration, it automatically gives it a credence that I think it's hard to ape. You know, it's hard to, to just come up with. Yeah. Turning a little bit to just the history of the industry, when I have had the good fortune to talk to, for example, 2D and 3D animators, I just find that they all seem to have a pretty strong sense of the history of their industry. And I'm wondering if you feel that the same is true for stop motion. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's probably because when, well, certainly my generation and before, when you're a, a kid and you first get exposed to animation, in, in my case, actually, it was 2D animation first. There's this kind of like magic spell that's cast and you're like, your young creative mind is thinking, I need to know what this is. I need, because I want to do this. And so you're, you're, you instantly start trying to find out everything you can about it. And because I'm old, uh, for me, you know, you, can, you couldn't just Google it. Um, so it meant going out and buying books and watching every behind the scenes footage of every animated movie you could possibly think of. You know, you, you, there's a hunger that comes with that interest because you want to know everything about it. So I think you, you automatically, anyone who's in animation automatically has that in them. I, I, think, I think that's where it comes from. With me, with uh, stop motion, I think it's also because the history of it is so rich and enjoyable. And it's something that you see all the time. Like everyone has seen the um, AT-AT walkers in, in Empire Strikes Back, that stop motion. Everyone has seen, you know, Ray Harryhausen creatures in, or, the, you know, the skeleton fight in Jason and the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. That's out there and it, it, it's very easy to see. So I, I think it's easy to... Um, to become invested in the history of this medium. So when you're writing a story like Missing Link, which I think is pretty clearly a very sprawling period piece, uh, and I know you mentioned some of Deborah's research, but what kind of historical research do you do? I, I actually love the research part because I love reading. I love finding treasures in old books or old reference books, photographic books. I use it as an excuse to just buy stuff. <laughs> so for the movie, but and and you know, bear in mind, I've been writing this on and off for many many years. So over that time, I've accumulated so many books. I could not even tell you how many um, Sherlock Holmes books I have read, and even the ones that are not by Conan Doyle. Um, I've read everything, mm -hmm. um, and it's it, it, it is an era that I love. It's very easy uh, for me to do that. And I'll buy, you know, kids' picture books because they get across uh, usually 
with imagery um, at that period in a very succinct way. I'll buy DVDs, everything that I can get my hands on that's out of that period. So it's not just kind of dry nonfiction. I will try and dive into any fiction that exists of a certain time as well, um, because that's really what we're doing, telling stories. So you kind of, um, for me, obviously, a, a, a starting point for this was uh, Lost Horizon, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously, is the, the, it's the first mention of Shangri-La, in fact. And I think it was written in 1932, 1933. I could be wrong. But that was obviously an important uh, starting point for me because I'm writing a story about the search for Shangri-La. So obviously I read that and then I followed that up by watching the movies of that. And there are certain aspects of those movies that have really nothing to do with history other than the part of the history of cinema. Um, But I'll lean on that a little bit as well. So for example, the first version of Lost Horizon, the black and white movie, which is problematic in so many ways, not least of which is that Shangri-La is quite clearly an art deco mansion in um, <laughs> L.A. Um, but there's aspects of that that I, I try and get some art deco into the design of Shangri-La in the movie. There are white doves in the black and white version everywhere. And so, of course, I have white doves on the balcony in my Yeti temple. So I think it's cherry picking. It's cherry picking what I want, what I like, what I find amusing, or what I think enriches. And sometimes I'll read a lot and maybe only use 10% of it. Because that's the other thing is like, you know, I said earlier, you want something to, um, to make your setting credible, but you don't want to alienate a viewer by being too slavish to reality. I mean, this is a story about a talking Bigfoot dressed as a man. Wait, are you, are you telling me that's not a real thing? <laughs> well, ooh, this could be a longer discussion <laughs> than I anticipated. Um, but you know what I mean? It's like at some point you, you can say, it's okay if I'm not realistic with this. As an example, Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And this was one that I wrestled with a lot because I, I, I do take history seriously. And the use of the word Bigfoot did not start until um, the 1950s, I think, um, in American journalism. And I think the, 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 the Patterson footage wasn't until 1960 something. So a lot of the ideas we have of Bigfoot as a creature came from the middle of the last century. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm starting a lot before that. But I did for a while, I wrestled with, I'm not going to use the word Bigfoot because it wasn't used back then. Uh, so Lionel himself is a cryptozoologist. That term didn't exist um, until the, you know, the middle of the last century. But there's a point where you're like, does it matter? Right. So in fact, I ended up making, making a, a, a joke of Bigfoot when Lionel holds up the cast of the foot. One of the guys in the club says, ooh, that's a Bigfoot. <laughs> Um, and that was that was my way of nodding to the fact that uh, historical accuracy, but also trying to have a bit of fun with it as well. Yeah. I probably think way too much about this stuff. But um, if people ask me, I, I certainly have reasons for all these decisions. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, at the end of the day, you're a storyteller, right? Now, do you, as a director, are you ever at odds with your writer self when it comes to grounding something like the Yeti Temple in a historically set 
piece of fiction? Or do, do those two sides of yourself play pretty nicely together? They play pretty nicely with with me, depending on where I am. I mean, obviously, what my tastes change, my my ideas change over time, and if I'm writing something for a, a long time, they can change quite a lot. But um, for the Yeti Temple, as an example, you know, this I, I've also got to be delicate in in a lot of my decisions because we're not just talking about history as it pertains to me culturally, but we're talking about the history of other cultures. So for the Yeti Temple, you know, uh, Shangri-La was uh, an invention of an author, but it's based on Shambhala. And, you know, that that has an importance in in Buddhism. So I wanted to make it clear that I'm not trying to make this the Shambhala of a specific religion or faith. You know, Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is create something that's separate from that. But you could see why people um, can associate the two. When it came to the design of the temple, I wanted to almost suggest that like yetis, um, you know, being ape men, essentially, were like the square root of different cultures. So we referenced Jainism, we referenced Buddhism in terms of architectural styles. And this is really, you know, uh, at this point, I hand this over to the production designer and I talk about what my thoughts are. Um, and it's a story point in the movie, which actually comes from uh, Lost Horizon, that people who live in Shangri-La don't age when, in fact, in this movie, it, they're not immortal. They're yetis in that they are still primitive men, if that makes sense. So I, I wanted to nod to that. And that's why we kind of thought, well, if we backtrack from certain architectural styles and combine them and almost find like the square root of them, what could that look like? It's almost like if you were designing Atlantis or, you know, some of the uh, fantastical place, but you, you want it to be believable enough. So you do borrow from different designs, different styles. And I thought Nelson did a, a really sophisticated job in finding the look for that thing. Uh, I would concur. That set visit was mind-blowingly beautiful. Shifting back to kind of the industry, in your opinion, what's been the most significant development in stop-motion film during your career? Like, what is the thing that future historians will be like, this was the moment that the industry shifted? I think it's two things. Generally, I think it's digital technology. Digital effects have enabled us to tell uh, different kinds of stories in stop motion. You know, stop motion traditionally uh, was limited uh, in its scope and scale because you have physical assets, you have a puppet on a set. So you're limited as to how big that puppet can be, how big that set can be. So I think if you look historically, you, you can see that in the kinds of stories that stop motion was telling. And I think digital technology has allowed us to kind of knock down the walls with uh, CG extras, uh, digital set extensions. We can paint on a much bigger canvas. And, and also just in terms of uh, the, the, the complexity of the animation, because there's so much that um, cleanup that can be done digitally, you know, in terms of rigging, puppet rigging. Mm-hmm. Um, that has changed the face of stop motion animation, no doubt. But I think for me specifically, it would be facial animation, uh, replacement faces, and the 3D printing of faces. That has enabled us to aspire to a level of nuance and uh, sophistication in acting, uh, facial acting, that I think 
wasn't really possible before. I mean, you get some great practical facial animation in stop motion. You, you can achieve that. But I think we took it to a whole other level. And actually, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of with Missing Link is that I think we've uh, approached a level of acting in the facial animation that is like nothing that's been seen before in stop motion. You know, even the idea of uh, up until this movie, we had like a kit system for the faces where we would build uh, dialogue out of different faces that were in a kind of library. Well, with this movie, everything's bespoke. Every shot has been independently animated and printed. So every performance is very much specific to that line of dialogue. And I don't think that's been seen before in stop motion. That's amazing. I to evidence your answer, as I was prepping for this, I was rewatching Kubo and I had to pause it at one point and Kubo is kind of jumping through the air and I thought, oh, he would hate seeing that picture of himself because he's making a really weird face. And then I went, oh my <laughs> God, they made him make a really weird face. Um, so <laughs> kudos you. <laughs> oh, that's it was that's a very great. strange kind of meta moment. You know, I recently had a similar thing and that's when I, I, I feel confident in, in that we've done our job right. I, you know, I've watched this movie again and again and again, hundreds and hundreds of times. I tended to watch it every week while we were making it um, because you need that kind of global perspective. But just a couple of months ago, I was watching a scene. It was the scene with Lionel and Link on the ship. And just for a second, I, I caught myself because I completely believed that these characters were having a conversation. <laughs> and that's what I want. Yeah. And if I can be fooled, even for just a second, if I can forget that I'm supposed to be doing a job, and I'm, I'm then then we're doing something right, you know. Yeah. Incidentally, Chris was exactly right in his guess as to the year that the book Lost Horizon came out. It was 1933. So finally, uh, I want to jump back to my interview with Ariane Setner just for a moment to close this episode out because I wanted to get her take on how today's stop motion animation is going to look from the vantage point of the future. So when historians of the future look back at this era in the industry and maybe even your career, what do you hope stands out? Oh, I just, I hope what stands out is that we made great movies. I mean, that's that's it, really. Our, I believe, just like we're talking about Rudolph, our movies really endure. They're, they're personal and they're universal. They look great a decade later. You know, we just showed Coraline at this big, concert hall here, the Schnitzer in Portland. And it was a, you know, a sold out crowd. People are still interested in that movie. And I think that's true of a lot of stop motion animations. I hope that, you know, I hope future generations find them interesting and watch them and share them. And you said it's a heavy question. I think that none of us really have the luxury of sitting back and assessing (laughs) what we do or its cultural impact while you're doing it. But I would say that you do, we do try to bake as much meaning into these movies as we go along and hoping that people find it, you know, relatable and meaningful and often food for thought. Many, many thanks to everyone at Leica for sharing their time and thoughts and the love of their craft with us. In case it's not abundantly obvious, the whole experience of getting to visit their set and speak with the people whose work I have been admiring for years was an absolute joy for me. It felt like an early birthday present. Missing Link is opening this weekend, April 12th, so if you're in the mood for a stylish round-the-world romp, also funny and rooted in history, go check it out. Yeah. I'm going to do super short listener mail because this is a long episode. Okay. If you're still hanging in with me, (laughs) 
Uh, we're going to have a quick email from Sue, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I am a third-grade teacher. Teaching social studies, particularly history topics, is my favorite part of the day. I love it, and my students love it. I really enjoyed finding your podcast, and I, as I've been making my way through the archives, I particularly choose episodes that enhance the topics I teach. Civil rights, Titanic, early settlements, inventions and inventors, just to name a few. Though most of the details in your podcast are a little too much for my nine-year-olds to consume, I often throw out random facts that add to the lesson. I might say, I was recently listening to a story about blank and learned blank. Yesterday, we were going through a book about popular inventions, and a few times in the book, I was sharing extra comments. When I turned the page to begin talking about the next invention, one student perked up and asked, did you just hear a story about this one too? <laughs> I'm so glad I can learn daily and add to my teaching through the work you do. Keep it up, and I look forward to catching up on all the year's archives. Uh, thank you so much, Sue, and also thank you for being an educator. My hat is always off to teachers, and I feel like they need a lot more love than they generally get. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History, and our website is mistinhistory.com, where you can find all of the episodes that have ever existed of the show and work through the archives like Sue is doing. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, I highly encourage it. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 